All right. If you have your Bibles here this morning, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going we're gonna to follow up with, um, with a message covering some of what we covered last week. Last week, we, we talked about King David. I titled the sermon, The Fall of a Great Leader. And we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we spent a good deal of time, probably most of the time, focusing on David's sin and how, how idleness uh, made him vulnerable and led to him indulging uh, in a sinful act that had damaging effects upon the rest of his life and upon his family. We, we looked at how idleness and then his imagination, and then he indulged in that particular sin. And then he experienced some confrontation. He experienced the season of, of walking in, in hidden sin, trying to cover it, trying to conceal it, trying to fix it himself, kind of like Adam and Eve did at the very beginning. That's our human nature is to run and hide or to create some fig leaves and try to fix our problem ourselves. Um, and, and then we see in chapter 12, we're going to look at chapter 12 today where God shows up. After David had sent for Bathsheba and sinned and, and committing adultery with her and having her husband killed, we see in chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan the prophet. The Lord sent a man to speak into David's life, to confront him in his sin, and to be an instrument of God's mercy and God's grace so that he would come to repentance and find mercy and grace after he had sinned greatly. As I was thinking about this story and thinking about the example of repentance, I was reminded of the, the man who discipled me and his father. And one of the things that he said about his father that impacted him the most about his father's walk with the Lord over the years, it wasn't a perfect walk. He saw his father and mother separate at one point in their life, and, and he saw his father make some selfish decisions, but then at one point, his dad repented, and it was clear that he repented from his selfishness, and, and his mom and dad got back together, and they worked things out. I saw this man. He was the president of the company, the, the, the furniture company that I worked for. I saw him before the company of maybe 200 people or more washed the feet of a handful of men who had been with that company for years and he felt that they had been mistreated over the years. And so he publicly repented and washed their feet and there was a worship song during that time because it's a Christian family-owned company and, and, and there was just tears in that place and the presence of God was just, just thick in that place. God was there as there, there was this demonstration of public repentance and so here was a leader who wasn't a perfect leader, who didn't have a perfect walk like none of us do, but he, he exemplified repentance. And so what we looked at last week is David's life, who was a great leader, a man of courage, a man of conviction. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart, a man of integrity, who shepherded Israel with integrity of heart. Acts 13 says that he served his generation in doing the, the, the purpose, he served the purpose of God in his generation, right? And so we see a man who was used by God, who, who pointed people to God, who's written so many prayers, psalms that we just love. Some of our most beloved scriptures, our favorite scriptures 
or in the Psalms, right? Psalm 23, and, and we just, we're so, we, we're, we're given life and encouragement and, and communion with God through these words. Yet we see this godly man who was a prayerful man, a worshipful man, a man who loved God's word, we see him fall significantly. And last week, I, I said, you know, it's hard to imagine it's hard to imagine how someone so godly can do some so, so great and ungodly acts of abuse and misuse of power. It just baffles me. And perhaps you have thought the same thing when, when you've seen leaders fall or, or somebody like David in the Bible commit such great sins. I, I think it should baffle us. Right, But I think it should also remind us of, of the nature of all of humanity, that there's only one who's never sinned. And even the best of leaders will let us down. Even the best of leaders have their flaws. There's one hero in the Bible, and it's not David. It's Jesus. And David's life points us to Jesus and the need for a king, a greater king, that we all need a king who would come. The son of David is what he's called. One of the titles he's given in the scripture. And so I think we should not only be baffled and amazed that such a godly man can do such ungodly things. I think we should also be baffled and amazed that such a holy and righteous God can forgive such wicked sins. We should be amazed by the grace of God that David found mercy and forgiveness and that God didn't just strike him dead, with, which is what he, from his own mouth, declared the man who had done this thing deserved. And so let's look at the text together. Let's look at how God met him with mercy and grace. 2 Samuel, I've titled this sermon, Rebuke, Repentance, and Repercussion. Rebuke, repentance, and repercussion. That's what we're going to look at in 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Let that sink in for a moment. Here's David in his sin, having murdered, having committed adultery, coveted his neighbor's wife, covered it up, misused his power, hiding the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he bought it up, he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used it to eat of his morsel and drank from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was a daughter to him. And there was a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his flock or herd and prepare for the guest who had come to him. And he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. Because he had no pity. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would, have add, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Why did you do this evil thing in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight, in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, but I will do it before all of Israel before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is the word of the Lord. And here's our big idea. David was confronted by Nathan in his sin. And he repented and he found forgiveness but he still had to live the rest of his life with the consequences of his sin. See, he was confronted. God sent a man, a prophet, somebody who was walking upright and somebody who heard from him, somebody who would speak truth into his life. And he needed that. This was a mercy and a grace. He showed up in David's life and he says to him, you are are the man he tells them this story of of a, of a man who took another man's sheep and david was a shepherd and this just tugged at the heart of david david was not going for this david saw the injustice david was angry about it david it, it's and by the way it's it's isn't it easier to see the log in other people's lives the greatness of other people's sin and overlook how great ours is. Isn't that our tendency? It's, so, it's just easier to see other people's sins, right? You know, and Jesus tells us that we got to get the log out of our own eyes so we can see clearly to help others who have a speck in theirs, right? It's just easier to see other people's sin. David hears this story and he's like, man, this is sinful. This is wrong. And yet while he's getting all worked up, little does he know he's about to indict himself. And he does. And Nathan skillfully walks him through this. Nathan was prepared, okay? Nathan thought about this. Now, Nathan did this at, at the risk of his own life, by the way. Because it doesn't always end well for people who confront others in their sin. The Bible tells us that when you rebuke a fool, that there's going to be some backlash, Right? And it doesn't always work out like that. Perhaps you, you've had that experience where you've tried to correct somebody who is just hardened in their sin, hardened on their path to destruction, and you said something, man, you just got bit. You got struck at. And, and all you're trying to do is help that person and help them see God, you're hurting yourself. You're on a road to destruction. You need some help. So Nathan was a, a man of God, somebody who heard from God, and he was someone who was willing to do the hard thing in David's life. Now, he had the relational connection, 
All right? So just like Saul had the prophet Samuel to speak into his life as the king, as the first king of Israel, David had the prophet Nathan to speak into his life. There was some history there. There was some connection there. And so Nathan used that relational um, equity. He used that bridge relationally to speak the truth into his life. Nathan was a man of conviction and of courage, and he skillfully addressed the king with a story. He addressed David, who was tangled in his guilt and shame and sinful hypocrisy and immorality and hiding. And he prepared a well-thought plan, and he held David accountable. You see, we all need accountability. Leaders need accountability. Every person needs accountability. We need somebody in our lives who will tell us you're wrong when we're wrong. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting your family. You're in danger. We need somebody to love us enough who will risk the relationship to say something that's really difficult. Nathan had some conviction, biblical conviction behind this. The biblical conviction was the Ten Commandments. Okay. By the way, if you, you, you need to kind of discern, okay, when do I need to confront somebody, a brother in sin? Well, one, one, of, the, one of the things I would say is, is there a violation of the Ten Commandments? Adultery, murder, lying, theft, covetousness, idolatry, dishonoring parents, and the list goes on. Like Those, those are repeated, by the way, in the New Testament. Those are repeated, um, repeated re-emphasized as standards of morality in the New Testament. Each one of those is mentioned and re, reinforced in the New Testament, minus the Sabbath, which is, is a good study for you to dig into and explore why and what the New Testament says about that and how it teaches Christians to address it. But Nathan, under the conviction that it is wrong to commit adultery, it's wrong to covet your neighbor's wife, it's wrong to commit murder, approached David with a plan. And he came to him to speak hard words of truth. Now, here are some common responses, and this, is, this could have been how David responded. Had he not been a man of God, had he not been a man of integrity, he could have been defensive. He said, I, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't really mean to do it. God knows my heart. You know, he, he could have been dis dismissive. He could have said, it's not a big deal. I'm the king. Come on. Right? He, he, he could have, he could have uh, had self-pity uh, and despair and, and, and just said, oh, I just, I can't do anything right. I can't do anything right. What's wrong with me? He could have had denial. He could have been like, no way. No way. It's not my fault. I'm, I'm not in wrong. Or he, he could have attacked. He could, have said, he could have said, Nathan, what about you, man? I, I saw you with this or that. He could have turned it around. Or he, or he could have had non-answers. Okay, How many people respond with non-answers when they're confronted with an issue in their lives? Avoiding, avoidance, or silent treatment. Just cut Nathan off. I'm not talking to him. Let's get him out of here. I'm not ever going to talk to him again. He's judgmental. Or he could, have, he could have practiced what, here's a more recent term, gaslighting, right? He could have been like, Nathan, you're crazy, man. I didn't have Uriah sent out there. I didn't do that. That, that was the, whoever, Joab, who was over the army, right? He could have totally turned it on him and tried to make Nathan think that he didn't hear from the Lord. But he did hear from the Lord, right? And, and, and so, so David didn't give in to these 
common tendencies here. He took responsibility for his sin. He repented. He turned. The Bible tells us that uh, Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, it says that better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We all need a friend who will rebuke us in love. Who will tell us the truth even when it hurts, when it cuts. Not somebody who's merely going to be nice to us and pat us on the back and say positive words that we want to hear. Ephesians 4.15 says that we are to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. And so Nathan brought to David words that cut, words of rebuke, words of correction, words of confrontation. But he also brought words of comfort and encouragement, gospel words. The Lord has taken away your sin. Had David responded like one of these responses here, he probably would not have said that next phrase with those comforting words. The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. That's gospel truth right there. David deserved to die for what he had done, and so do you and I, according to the Bible. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. David found mercy, and he found grace. He confessed, and he forsook his sin. He's an example for us of repentance. I think you and I should find great hope and warning from David's example. Warning that you can, you can really damage your life significantly and your family significantly if you do what he did. You follow that path. But also if you, found, if you have found yourself so deep in your sin that you think there's no way out. Gosh, you can look at David and be like, man, God forgave this guy. And find some hope that there is forgiveness offered to those who turn to God in repentance. And, and put their trust and their faith in him. This is what David did. He turned to the Lord in repentance. And he was met with these encouraging words. The Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die by the way the apostle paul when the apostle paul is explaining gospel truth in the book of romans chapter 4 he uses abraham and he uses david as an example of two people who believed god and were made right with god and were forgiven of their sin david experienced the blessedness the happiness of forgiveness of sins through faith he trusted in God. He repented and he put faith in God. He turned away from his sin. And by the way, there's a contrast between this king, David, and the prior king, Saul. Because we saw a confession in Saul. We saw that Saul, when he was confronted by Samuel, he acknowledged, I've sinned. But, but then we, we, see the, the, we see the heart, or we see, we see some um, uh, lack of repentance and lack of grief and lack of fruit of repentance when he's like, hey, well, well, just honor me, Samuel. Just honor me. He cared more about 
the, the effects of his sin, the, the worldly blessings or position being affected versus his relationship with God in his sin. And David was more concerned about, first of all, this relationship getting right when he sinned. And so we see two different responses between David and Saul that we can learn from and be warned from. We see that David acknowledged his sin instead of denying it, dismissing it, and doing all those other things. He acknowledged, I have sinned. And we see that he was grieved over his sin. Now, if you're, just, if you're just reading this story, you may not see all that. You may be like, especially those of us who have a stronger sense of justice, you may be like, that's it? Like, God's just gonna, you're just going to forgive him like that? that like, no, no consequences? Well, there's still consequences. But forgiveness just like that? I've sinned? Right? But, but we see in the, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 51, we see the prayer of repentance. We see what was going on in his heart and how he turned to the Lord. We see that he grieved, and, and 2 Corinthians 7, uh, 10 says that a godly grief produces repentance. That leads to salvation without regret, whereas a worldly grief produces death. I think Saul and David both illustrate a godly grief um, and, and a worldly grief, the contrast between the two. And repentance, one that accompanies repentance and one that doesn't. And we see that David changed his mind about his sin. He, he turned away from his sin. He did what Solomon wrote about years later. And perhaps Solomon had his father's example in mind when he wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. For, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Solomon heard the story about this later on. Solomon knew what happened with dad later on. And, and, and David's life exemplifies this. For the six to, to nine months that David was living in this sin, he probably wasn't writing many worship songs and having sweet times with the Lord and, and experiencing a, a bunch of good things in his life. He describes that time as God's hand being heavy on him in Psalm 32. He describes it as the drought of summer, strength being sucked out of him, and him just, just in misery, concealing his sin, not being known, not experiencing genuine communion with the Lord, and, and being known in relationships. And so let's look at Psalm 51, lest, lest those of us, uh, lest anyone here conclude that David's a bad guy, and I'm not going to read the Psalms anymore, and I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't like that guy for what he did. Because the Bible still calls him a man after God's own heart, right? The Bible uh, points to the reality that he experienced mercy and forgiveness. So let's just read this here. Have mercy. This is his prayer in, in the inscription above Psalm 51. It, it describes this as a prayer of, of, of uh, David when he went into, um, after he was confronted and repented and went into, uh, from going into Bathsheba. He said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to the abundant mercy, your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil, done what is evil in your sight. Now, now others, the family of Uriah, Bathsheba, May, may not agree with David's statement here. They would have been like, no, you, you wronged some other people here, right? 
But, but David's pointing out that ultimately our sin, his sin and our sin is an offense towards God. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Did my mother conceive me? Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or else I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered to your altar. Beautiful prayer. We ended last week in praying this prayer. When you need help verbalizing repentance to God, this is a great prayer to take and pray. And use it as vocabulary. Asking God to cleanse you. Asking God to have mercy on you. Asking God to change your heart. Asking God to restore your joy. The joy of your salvation. Here's, here's some of my observations here from, from this psalm. David believed that God is merciful, loving, and he forgives sins. And David hoped in God's mercy. Notice that David appealed to the mercy of God. David knew that Yahweh, the one true God, is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And so he was making his appeal to the one who does have the ability to forgive but also the one who does have the right and the ability to judge. And he's making his appeal, have mercy on me. What a great prayer that we see in the Bible in more than one place. Have mercy on me. And throughout history, the church has prayed that prayer, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. That is the posture of a repentant sinner, humbled by their sin, hoping in God's mercy. So he praised that. David believed that God can cleanse us from the guilt of sin. Do you believe that? You don't have to continue lingering in the guilt of that sin when you really have been forgiven and you really are free. You can move on. Because somebody has paid the price for that sin. There's been a sacrifice for us and we know this. The Old Testament saints were looking forward to this one who would come and address this biggest problem within the humanity. The Messiah, Jesus, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, who would be bruised for our iniquities. 
crushed for our sins, and the chastisement of our peace would be upon him. David knew what his sin was. He knew, he, 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 he recognized it. He, he called it for what it is. He accepted it for what it is. David knew that ultimately his sin was an offense to God, that though he had wronged others and done, abused his power and abused others this way, ultimately he needed to repent here. This needs to be the primary focus of the repentance, but there are still repercussions here that we got to address as well. David called his sin evil done in God's sight. You know, it's interesting how there's all kinds of things we can call our sin. Mistakes, flaws, forgetfulness, whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of names that we put on it, and I think it's just helpful for us to, when, we're, when we're guilty, when we feel the pressure of we've done wrong, we've sinned, to just call it for what it is. Because God forgives sins, not excuses. And when we can just get in agreement and say, God, you're right. Your word is right. That deceit, that, that was wrong. That was sin. Right? That, that maliciousness, that, that anger towards somebody unjustly, that jealousy, that lust, or whatever the sin is, just, just say, call it what it is so that we can be forgiven and free and cleansed and move on and not let those things hold us back. David recognized that he was born in sin and naturally strayed from God's ways. Right? He was in sin. Did my mother conceive me? He recognized that. Ephesians 2 teaches us this, this truth, that we by nature do sinful things. And so it's not just by choice, but by nature. And so we need not just behavior management program. We need to be born again. We need regeneration. We need to be changed at the core. And this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers us. Regeneration, new birth, new creation where we are changed at the core of our identity, and from that change, we, we do things different. We think different. We live different. It's good news. David asked for his joy back. Anybody else here need to ask for your joy back? Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Joy and peace are one of the first things that leave when we choose unrighteousness. And one of the first things I think we experience when we turn back to righteousness and repentance. Joy and peace. And that's what David celebrated in Psalm 32. Oh, the joy of those, those who, whose sins are forgiven, whose lawless deeds are covered, to, to whom the Lord does impute no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's a happiness and there's an honesty that is accompanied by those who've experienced the forgiveness of God. There's a joy. David asked for a, for a clean heart. He asked for his joy back. He recognized that God's loving, he recognized God's loving discipline for his sin. He says, the bones that you have broken, the bones that you have broken, Right? He says, and he says, create in me a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit within me. I, I love the focus on the heart here. And this is what comes out in the Psalms. As we see a man after God's own heart, we see a man who deals with his heart, whether it's complaints, whether it's fears, whether it's doubts, whether it's joy. 
he, you see his heart coming forth. And I think it's good for us men, by the way, to learn from him how to express our feelings in a healthy, holy way and, and, and talk from the heart rather than just the head because many men tend to just stay here with facts and don't get down to heart feeling issues, deeper things. Sometimes I think that's a form of hiding and covering up uh, from our sin and our struggles. It, it just staying, in the, staying here in the head stuff, talking sports, talking work, talking head stuff, just, just up here, superficial stuff. And God, in relationship, God wants, he wants us to go deeper than that. So David was most concerned about his relationship with God. David asked for God's sustained strength. David resolved to teach others. He said, I'm going, I'm, you know, when you forgive me, I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. I'm going to teach others. And we see that David relied upon God for salvation, for deliverance. We see that he resolved to sing loudly when we've lost our song, when we've lost our song to God, and we've lost our desire to tell others about God. There's probably something wrong with the heart that needs some attention. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so here are some marks of true repentance. And this is what Charles Swindoll says in his book about David's life. Here's, here's some of the, the marks that accompanied his repentance and accompanies true repentance. One is an open, unguarded admission. An open, unguarded admission. A desire to make a complete break with sin. The spirit is broken and humble. There's a grief there over the sin. And he says, a claiming of God's forgiveness and reinstatement. So notice these last couple of verses here in Second Samuel, uh, in Psalm 51, verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice or else I would give it. You would not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Right? It's good for us when we've done wrong to be broken over what we've done wrong, to grieve over it, to be brought to a place of repentance. As we think about God's goodness in our lives, how good he's been to us and how we could do such things that would dishonor him and hurt others. And as we think about the penalty, the consequences of our sin, we do well to grieve over those things and be broken Instead of trying to bring some sacrifice, imagine if David tried to compensate will be like with like, oh, I'm going to write these new songs for you, God. I'm going to do this or that for you, God. He didn't have anything to bring to the table. He brought his brokenness. He brought his need. And God met him in it. So now let's look at the consequences of David's sin that he had to live with for the rest of his life. This isn't as fun to focus on. And yet it's sobering, and I think it can be a barrier for us as we think about the negative example that he experienced in his family life as a result. Nathan said this, he said, Therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against your house, out of your own house, and I will take your wives before the eye, your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. And I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. Nevertheless, 
because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. This is heavy. David experienced forgiveness. God had taken away his sin when he repented. But that baby that, that came forth while him and Bathsheba did what they did, ended up dying. And we see the rest of the story here. Uh, it says that Nathan went to David's house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. And he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and he went in and he lay all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood be beside him to raise him up from the ground. But he would not. He would not eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. The servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How, how then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he's dead. And then David arose from the earth and he washed and anointed himself and he changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then he went to his own house where they, they and <clears throat> he went to the, they, he went to his own house and when they asked, they set food before him and he ate when he asked. And, and then his servant said to him, what is this thing you've done? You fasted and wept while the child was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Shall I go to him? But he will return to me. I love this. This is a beautiful response here that I see, that we see here in David. He was, I think the fasting also implies the grief of um, the repentance that he was walking in, but also he was pleading to God for mercy. He was hoping that God would, would let the baby live, even though it was David's fault that the baby ended up dying. It was a consequence of, of his sin. And in this, in this statement here, he says, shall, I shall go to him. I shall go to him. He says, you know, he, he eats food afterwards. One, he's fasting and praying, hoping that God would spare the baby and that the baby would live. And then the baby dies and he eats and he worships God. He doesn't blame God and say, you're, you're terrible. Why'd you do this? David already said, you're just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David already recognized that God is righteous in his judgments. And so, so, so yes, David uh, fasted and he prayed, hoping that God would be gracious, hoping that God would be merciful. But he had this perspective here that God just might let this child live. And, and that one day he's going to be reunited with that child. Theologians point to that and, and and many theologians believe that he's speaking about when david dies he's going to see that baby again 
And what a comfort for mothers who have lost children. For couples who've lost children, who've grieved over the loss of children. What a comfort to think that one day we'll get to see that child that we lost. Again, I'm sympathetic towards this view. I know there, there are many here who've walked through that. The pain of miscarriage or, or losing a child. And as we, we talk about that, that, as we talk about the consequences, the painful consequences of David's sin, I do want to be clear to, to, to say that it doesn't mean that every couple who's lost a child, that it's due to their personal sin. It doesn't mean that. There's several mothers here who've lost children and have gone through that pain. But we see this comforting uh, statement that, that David has this hope to see the child again one day. That, that one day, you, for you and I, we have this hope that one day that the, the, the curse, of that, that the brokenness that entered into this world from Genesis 3 and from our own personal sin that we've, that we've brought uh, in the pain into our life through will be, we'll, we will experience redemption and peace and no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more death, no more sickness because our Lord Jesus has come to rescue us. And he will come again. But let us also highlight the re reality that the New Testament teaches about the painful consequences of sin. And I'm going to quote from the message paraphrase from Eugene Peterson. In Ephesians chapter 6, the New Testament truth. Of the, for those of us living under a covenant of grace. Paul says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that he will also reap. Right? Yes, there's forgiveness. But there are consequences. If I, if, I, if I break my arm stealing something, right, and, and then and go to jail because I stole something and I have a broken arm, but, but I ask God for forgiveness and I repent, like, well, it was terrible. I still have to live with the consequences of, of um, the law and consequences of that broken arm, right? Uh, those who've given their life to, to, to drug addiction, right, and, and, and get clean, there may be still, you may come experience God's forgiveness and renewal and redemption, but there may be some relationships that will never be the same because of the burned bridges. And there may be some health effects that never get fully restored because of the damage you've done to your body with those choices. And so there are painful consequences to sin. We shouldn't be fooled thinking that, that just because we're under grace that we can do whatever we want. And there not be any painful effects to it. For David, it was his family. It was the loss of a child. It was the abuse of his son with his daughter. And then the murder of his son by a brother. These were the painful effects of David's sin. And so Eugene Peterson says this. He says, Don't, do not be, and, and paraphrasing Galatians 6, 7, and 8, do not be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. And all he'll have to show for his, his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God 
letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvest a crop of real life, eternal life. One theologian goes on to describe these painful consequences of David's choices in his life. And he says, polygamy is just the Greek for a dunghill. David trampled down the first and the best law of nature in his palace in Jerusalem. And for his trouble, he spent all his after days in a hell upon earth. David's palace was a, perf- was a perfect pandemonium of suspicion and intrigue and jealousy and hatred, all breaking out now into incest and now into murder. And it was, such, it was in such a household, if such a cesspool could be called a household, that Absalom, David's third son, by, by David's third son, by his third living wife, was, was brought and brought up. A little ring of jealousy and scheming of parasites, all hateful and hating one another, collected around one of David's wives. And it was in one of the worst of those wicked little rings that Absalom grew up and got his education. If you haven't read the story and you're not familiar with it, Absalom was somebody who, it says that he stole the hearts of the Israelites. He was divisive and he was undermining his father's authority in in the kingdom. He was trying to dethrone his father and he was using people as objects to get what he wanted, namely power and position. And then we see Ammon and the incest with his sister and the terrible thing that happened. We see him objectifying his sister. And it's so interesting to note that this was the very thing. David was seeing his own actions mirrored in the lives of his children. One who objectified another man's wife and took her for himself. And then put her husband out on the front line of battle like a pawn and had him killed in morality and murder. We see the painful consequences being unraveled in his family. Alexander McLaren says that and it is, it is in mercy that we have to drink as we have brewed. And that we have to lie upon the beds that we have made. That in regard to outward consequences and in regard to our own hearts and inward history, we are architects of our own fortunes and cannot escape the penalties of our sins of faults. But to have it so then be cursed with impunity. And so we see David's response To these consequences. He appealed to God's mercy. He hoped in God's mercy. He accepted them as fair and just. And he acknowledged God's justice. D.A. Carson says this. He says David's response to the most pressing of the judgments. Is altogether salutary. Salutary. Which means good. God God is not the equivalent of of impersonal fate. He is a person, and a person may be petitioned and pursued. Despite his massive failure, David is still a man who knows God better than his numerous critics. And so let me read just 
talking about objectifying people and misusing people. Eugene Peterson says this about Tamar and her brother. Tamar has long since ceased being a person to be listened to or a sister to be treated with love. She has been depersonalized into a target for lust as far as Ammon is concerned. Tamar is nothing but a piece of pornography. Once she is depersonalized into a sex object, he can do whatever he wishes. We know what happens in the story. And then we see murder. Absalom murdered his brother and divided Israel, stole the hearts of the Israelites, and brought grief to his father and took matters into his own hands and objectified people for position and power. God forbid that any of us should treat anyone who's been made in the image of God in such a way as this. And yet this is human nature. This is the tendency of humanity in its ugliness. And I, I appreciate the, that the Bible doesn't hold these things back. That it helps us see how ugly and terrible sin is. And points us, points us to hope and redemption that we find ultimately in Jesus. God is a good God, a good father. He's just, he's righteous, and he addresses us graciously, but justly. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And sometimes the Father lets us experience the sting of our choices. So that we might not stray. So that we might not stray. I'm going to change the tone a little bit and just share a... <laughs> Much different story, much lighter story, uh, just this past week. In my, my, my own family, um, one of my children forgot homework. And this isn't the first time. And the rest of the family was, the rest of the, the children um, were, um, didn't want to be late. And they were, would be late if, if this child had to look for the homework and so mom and dad made a decision. We're not going to let the other kids be late. We're going to let this child experience the sting of not being ready, which we've talked about many times. And, and, and so it didn't go well on the way to a school, as you can imagine, or the departure for school. I mean, it's one of those departures that no parent wants to have with their children, right? And so mom and dad talked about it, and we decided... Okay, we, we want our child, we want, our, we want to learn, we want to help our children learn how to feel the, the, the sting of poor choices, or not, not the best choices, right? And so we decided, okay, we'll bring it up. We'll bring it up to school, right? And we did, right? We got it, got it up there, um, and it was a happy story. This is a positive story, by the way. It ended with, thank you, thank you, mom and dad, and just a humble, simple gratitude expressed having felt the sting of showing up after working hard on homework all week, week-long homework assignment, turning it in, not, not having it. Um, it turned out to be a good story. And the father, I say that not because Kendall and I are the best of parents. We, we blow it in many ways. There's been many uh, negative stories that we could share too. Um, but we have a father who deals with us perfectly, exactly how we need to be dealt with. 
with grace, with mercy, with faithfulness, with consistency. He's not a pushover. He's not a pushover. We can't manipulate him. We can't fool him. We can't treat him as a, as, a, as a vending machine and just get what we want out of him when we want it out of him. He's a personal God. He's the one true God. He's, he's the authority in our lives that we must respond to when we feel broken, we feel the pain of our brokenness. And we must remember, too, that we're beloved in the midst of that brokenness. Let me close with an analogy of this art, this Japanese art called kintsugi art. Anybody familiar with kintsugi art? Kintsugi is the art of repairing something that has been broken with gold, with the understanding that the object is more beautiful because it has been broken. Like the art of kintsugi, God repairs the brokenness in our lives and makes us more beautiful through the process. Can you see that? So you, t- you break the, intentionally break the, the piece of pottery, right? And then put it back together with gold in those broken parts. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And this is what God does with our lives. Each of us have been broken and experienced the brokenness of our sinful choices. And it hurts and we don't like it. And some of us have just been dysfunctional. Maybe even now you can't hold any water because you're not whole and you haven't put back together yet. But God is faithful to put us back together to heal us. So that we can get back to a place of wholeness where we can function as he designed us to function. And he wants to make something beautiful out of our lives. And he is committed to doing that. He will work all things together for the good of those who love him. Who are called according to his purpose. And that doesn't mean that all the things that we do are good. The choices that we make are good. But he will work something good in our lives, even in the midst of it, and even in David's life in the midst of it. And so let me close with just a couple points of application. Number one, resolve to speak the truth and love to those around you, especially other believers that you're in community with. We need to be willing to speak the truth in love. Call sin, sin, confront one another when it's time to do that, right? Timing is important. In that, just like with, with Nathan, timing was important. What was said and, and how it was said, it was a well thought through plan that, that David or that Nathan used in speaking to him. And he had to uh, proceed with courage. He had to risk the relationship in his own life even to have that tough conversation. And so we need to be those who love one another enough to say you're wrong when you're wrong but also to encourage one another as well with gospel words like Nathan did with with David. Next, embrace repentance as an ongoing part of your life, remembering that you haven't graduated from your need of it. None of us have. Repentance is, is, we we continue to sin. We're being sanctified. We need to have our minds continually renewed. And by the way, the New Testament word for repentance is change your mind. I think there's, every one of us have an area in our lives where we need to change our mind in some way. If you don't think so, we'll ask your spouse. (laughs) Uh, We all do, right? We need our minds renewed. We need to see things differently. 
according to Scripture, according to the truth that God has given us. And it also, the Old Testament word implies more of a changing of direction. So we change our mind and we change our direction. And there should be fruit of that in our lives. Actions, choices, attitudes, patterns of thought that accompany that change, right? And this is the grace of God. And it's the grace of God that God sends people in our life who love us enough to be instruments of, of, of helping us repent lest we cause more damage in our relationships. God sent Nathan to David. Who's God sending you to? Who, who does God want you to lovingly express the truth? And or who has God sent to you to speak into your life and challenge you when you're wrong or encourage you as well? You got to have both in relationships. We need both the accountability and the encouragement. And if it's just one, uh, that, that relationship is risky of not, not being sustained long term. And so rely upon and hope in God's mercy and his grace, appealing to God for it when you find yourself in sin. Let, let the goodness and the severity of God motivate you towards repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Romans chapter 2. But also knowing that there are severe consequences for those who persist in sin. And even for those who find forgiveness and mercy, there's still consequences that can affect our lives, painful consequences. It should motivate us to run from sin and run to God. And lastly, allow the awareness of the painful consequences of sin to be a barrier that helps you avoid it. If you all would stand with me.